BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022 by making investments from coast to coast. Investments like building charging hubs for fleets of electric buses in California and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Hello, this is the China Sports Insider Podcast. The Beijing Olympics are over, but there's still a lot to talk about. So if you haven't already, consider subscribing to the podcast. We're going to keep going on with analysis, news, and of course, guests. My name is Haig Balian, and I'm with Mark Dreyer. He is the author of Sporting Superpower. Today, we're going to do something a little different. We're going to take a look back at the Beijing Olympics with our top 10 storylines from the Olympics. And we define that really broadly. So, Mark, I think your top 10 is going to be... Well, I got some good things, some some not so good things, some different things, you know, a little bit of everything. It was hard to group them. So we're just going to kind of throw them in in a somewhat jumbled order, but uh, kind of ranked. I think the best way to do this is you give me your pick, yeah. and then I'll go with my pick. And if we have the same pick somewhere else down in the order, you know, we can talk about it. Sure. Way. Before we start, I wanted to ask you, in your book... You wrote about the hangover in sports in China after the 2008 Beijing Olympics, when China won 100 medals. What do you think a hangover is going to look like for China after these Olympics? You know what? I actually think, uh, despite the Winter Games being much smaller than, than the 2008 Olympics, I actually think the sporting legacy is going to be more significant from these Olympics than from the previous one. Back then, you know, the focus would just moved on and it, Sports didn't exactly go into the wilderness, um, but it wasn't really until 2014 where the government kind of picked it back up again with really significant policy decisions, which, you know, drove forward the development of the sports industry, leading to the to, to the bid for these Olympics and so on. Li Na, of course, was, was winning a couple of Grand Slams, so that certainly helped. Uh, we were at the tail end of Yao Ming's career, you know, but I think that winter sports is still really early in the growth curve here. So that is something that I'm optimistic about. If if that can continue, you know, forget the 300 million nonsense, but like actual numbers are encouraging, I think. And But I, I think there's still a long way to go. Yeah, it's going to be a really interesting storyline to watch over the next few years. All right. Well, speaking of storylines, let's get to it. Do you want to go first or should I go first? Uh, you choose. You go first. All right, so I'm going to start with something warm and fluffy. Well, actually cold and fluffy. The snow at number 10. The snowfall that we had in Beijing, it was fantastic. People are like, oh, well, we canceled some events because it's snowing. But you know what? We don't get a whole lot of snow. We've had quite a lot this year. And it did just make it feel everyone likes a snowfall. You know, every, everyone's posting the photos. Exactly. You know, yeah. <laughs> and it kind of got us, you know, it's kind of like Christmassy, sort of festive type winter Olympic mood. So I think that really helped 
to uh, to to conjure up the spirit that was perhaps missing in other areas. Yeah, that's that's interesting. I, I, I that was not on my list, but that's it's it's a great one. Um, number ten on my list was the Olympic venues and infrastructure. Right. You know, I've already talked about what I think about Big Air Shogang. I think it's just an incredible venue. And if you haven't read your article, <laughs> Haig has a great piece on the SubChina website. Uh, top of the homepage last time I looked, talking about Big Air. Definitely, everyone should go check that out. Yeah, thanks, thanks, Mark. Yeah, I, I loved, I, I just absolutely love that venue. But it's not the only new venue that not, that was built for these Olympics, not by a long shot. And I'm just wondering if it's the last time that a host country puts this amount of resources into infrastructure and venues. Take a look at the ski jumping venue, for example. Compare it to what we saw at the closing ceremonies at the Cortina presentation. It's it's different. And in terms of infrastructure, I, I've taken the train up to Chengli a couple of times. It's no surprise. It's, it's amazing. It's yeah. fast. It's convenient. Uh, it's cheap. And if you're coming from North America, it's, it's a stark contrast. At number nine for me, it is the, wait for it, Camilla Valieva doping scandal. And you know what? This had so many elements, um, not least the, the, the villainous figure of, of, uh, of the coach, Ateri. I'm going to try to pronounce this, Ateri Tutbaridza. Um, and, you know, with her sort of long curls and, and, and yelling at Valieva after she'd had that disastrous skate. But the, there's so many different angles. There's the sporting, there's the political you know, and, and again, we still are waiting to see. It's going to be months before this story has fully played out. Just for this particular case, we had the Americans launching their own case, say, hey, can we at least get our silver medals before we leave so we can kind of wear something on the plane, even if we're going to get gold further down the line? And, and they were denied. So, you know, there's there's lots of different human elements. And then, of course, you've got the bigger story about systemic doping and a, abuse of minors in sports. Some really, really interesting questions. Uh, that was a Big storyline, more in the in the news circles, I would say, than the sports. But but lots to talk about, and still continuing. It was number one for me. Whoa! <laughs> <laughs> uh, sorry, I didn't even give you the option to talk about it later. Oh it's no, okay. no, no, it's okay. No, it's it's interesting because I mean I, I've got it written down as Valieva shit show, and it absolutely was a shit show. Uh, I think the reason it was number one for me is I, I don't know if we've talked about this, but I have a real bias against judged sports. Yeah, you know, and, and I think some judge sports are worse than others. And I think figure skating is absolutely one of the worst for me to watch on television. You know, they have all those, you know, all these numbers on the screen. I have no idea what these numbers mean. I'm not a figure skating expert. I'm never going to be a figure skating expert. And so can I jump in? Yeah. Um, because for me, I, I totally get your point. Mm. But I feel like for this particular incident, that wasn't necessarily relevant because no one was really saying, oh, she should have won because of this or that. And the scoring was, we've had that in the past in figure skating famously. But like, if you look at sprinting, which also has, you know, some some doping scandals, and that is, that's certainly not judged. That's first past the post, like the essence of what you're talking about. I think, and I might be wrong, I think this scoring system was brought on specifically because the previous scoring system left room open for right. corruption. Now, what this has done is awarded more athletic moves. I mean, just just these incredible quads that these athletes do, which is demanding, you know, And it's incentivizing, demanding. of course, the, you know, the, the athletic, yeah. you know, the, the doping for example. Yeah, I, I don't know what the solution is. As I said, I'm not an expert on this, but you could probably make an argument that there is a direct line between that and, and, and what's happening with these young athletes. For a lot of people, it was the biggest story, perhaps um, more outside the sports world, I think, but it, it did dominate. And it had, of course, you know, Russia 
kind of in the news right now. So, uh, <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah. What do you have at number nine? Michaela Schifrin. Right. Five races, huge hope, five races, three DNFs, zero medals. She herself called it an epic underperformance, but that's not why she's at the top of my list. I think one of the things that she reminds you of is that your self-worth shouldn't be tied up with wins and losses. She failed. People fail. It happens sometimes. And she's fine. She's going to deal with it. Um, Her story is still being written. She's an incredible champion. And I think she's a great story in these Olympics. I had her too. Number six, Mm. under the wider category, let me just add a couple of things here. The wider category of disappointment. She was the first one that, you know, there was that, there was that almost haunting image of her just sitting on the side of the hill. You know, I'm getting chills just thinking about it now with her head down, just thinking, fuck, basically, like there's so much emotion running through that, that photo. Uh, but there were others, you know, there was a there was a Korean defending champion, the short track speed skating, Choi Minjoy, who was heaving with tears after getting silver. And then she came back and won gold. So she kind of had a, a positive ending. Sean White, you know, fourth. No one likes to, to finish fourth. But but my point is, it's the disappointment. And this is one of the frustrations for me about the 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 coverage from from the Chinese television perspective. Like they don't dwell on the disappointment. As soon as a Chinese athlete te- or team loses they cut. They immediately go off. And I'm like, you have to appreciate the the depression sometimes, the frustration, the tears. That's what makes the ultimate successes all the more rewarding. You know, without suffering and enduring those lows, the highs don't feel as high. So, you know, I'm not saying, hey, let's all wallow in pity, but for me, it's it's part it's you know it's part and parcel of the same thing. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, I do. I do. Shifrin's gonna be back. And and yeah. when she comes back, her next win is gonna be amazing. It's not just going to be like, oh, Schiffer won again. Exactly. What is your number eight? Number eight. Well, I think, you know, there was some political aspects. So I've kind of gone for... (laughs) I've kind of gone for politics number eight. I don't want to put it near the top of the list, but we can't ignore the politics. You know, there were two things here for me. This was, you know... Dinajia, uh, Ilan Mujiang, the only Uyghur athlete being selected as the torchbearer, and then effectively being hounded out of the games because, you know, she was understandably the focus of a lot of people had a lot of questions for her and she wasn't put up for, you know, she was dropped from the relay. It was actually, I saw a picture uh, last night. She's flown off uh, to, to Europe to complete the, the World Cup circuit. I hope that there are, you know, good things ahead in her future. And from a sporting perspective, I think, I think there are. You know, she's clearly a very promising athlete. She didn't have a good games. Um, she certainly wouldn't have expected to to have had to gone through what she went through. And then, you know, Peng Shui, for the love of God, please, can we stop trotting around at every single event? Like, why was she in the crowd to see Eileen Gu? It's just so unnecessary at this point. I know that's not the main focus of the whole Peng Shui conversation, but like, we get it, you know? It's just like, okay, please move on. And, you know, anyway, it just, <laughs> it just every time, I'm just like shaking my head and rolling my eyes. This was my number seven. So we had very, very close. I have nothing more to say about it, but that's exactly, yeah. I mean, it's... The two, both of them? Or, well, or? only, really only just uh, Dinajir, uh, Yulamu Jung. But yeah, absolutely yeah. with the Peng Shui uh, example as well. I mean, it, it's all sort of part and parcel of this. And it was a part of it. What's your number eight? My number eight is Norway. Now, we don't really think about Norway. It's because they've had so much success. Are, wait, the way you're looking at me right now, are, is this, are they on your list as well? No, Norway's not on my list. Okay, that's very interesting. interesting because I, I have not, I'm trying to think of the different angles you could be going with this, and I, I just don't know. Well, listen, they won the first gold medal. They won the last gold medal. Yeah. They won 14 gold medals in between 
a population of just over 5 million. They've been in the top four for pretty much every Olympic cycle since 1992. Yeah. I mean, this should be a massive story. The fact that this tiny little nation does well every single time. And I think we just sort of take that for granted. I was teasing one of the Norwegian coaches actually. He was like, you guys, you just clean up in cross country and biathlon. It's like, there's too many medals on offer. And he was like, yeah, it was like, ha I think you're right. It was like, I was like, maybe one, each Olympics choose either biathlon or cross country instead of like giving them 25 medals. Well, that's, that's, that's the point. Like, so the Guardian had a really fascinating piece about why this is. And that's yeah. one of the reasons, right? I mean, there's so many medals given out to biathlon and, and cross country. And these are sports that... Norway does really, really well in. But they also uh, suggested that maybe it's because there's all these, you know, there's thousands and thousands of sports clubs in, in Norway. And that's just a great sort of feeding ground for elite athletes. Speaking of Norwegians, it would be remiss of us not to mention again that we had that's Alexander Armat Kilda on the show, these are better known as, in some circles, <laughs> Michaela Schifrin's boyfriend, yeah. but also a fantastic yeah. uh, downhill skier and, and, uh, and slalom skier. He won silver and bronze at these Olympics. He was looking for gold, but he, uh, he's probably, uh, basically, he, he can maybe gift one to, uh, to, to his girlfriend and they'll have one each. Probably not the color they wanted. They're, well, yeah. I mean, we'll, we'll have to get them both on and, and ask. But that was a great show. It was good. So if you haven't heard that, uh, Absolutely. go look it up. Yeah, for sure. So you're number seven. My number seven is the Chinese pairs figure skating couple of Sui Wenjing and Han Song. Do you have them? No, I, I don't have them specifically. Okay, so a couple of things. I mean, number one, I, I'll be honest, I'm not a figure skating expert. I watch it where I can, but wow, were they good. I was just like gobsmacked that some of the moves they were pulling off and, and you know, I look at most figure skaters and think, okay, they're, they're all pretty amazing. I can't really, good thing I'm not a judge. Um, but they were just absolutely breathtaking and to have had the story that they had four years ago they were leading after the short program four years ago um in in pyeongchang and then they made some mistakes in the free skating and then ended up with silver and it's just because of the olympic cycle the nature of the olympic cycle you have to wait and wait and wait and dwell on it and think about it and it must just drive you crazy so to know that you've only got that one chance to redeem yourselves four years later there's a few minutes and, and to perform is like, is just amazing. And this goes back to your point about disappointment. Yeah. It's the disappointment that yeah. made this way sweeter, right? I feel so much, I, I feel so much happier for them because of what they went through. I already gave you my number seven. So let's move on to number six. And I already gave you my number six, which is the disappointment. Oh, well, okay. So my number six is gold for China. China had a really successful games, uh, nine gold, more than Canada, more than the US and lots to build on. Yeah, it was obviously a huge storyline. And the way that the the vast majority of countries in the world, and of course the official tally, puts China third. Now, China's conversion rate from medals to goals was stunning, um, with a huge percentage of total medals uh, uh, turning into gold. So that, well, that was really good. I just wonder, though, um, forget the kind of like, you know, whose country's better than, you know, you know, the ranking system. Would China rather have got 15 or so medals with those nine golds or 30 medals, such as, you know, ROC, and I think the Canadians got just about there, and, and not as many golds, you know, because that shows strength and depth. And it, it has, it's different, you know, like, like, China converted exceptionally well. And of course, that's what you want. You want all your athletes hitting. But to have more chances kind of bodes better for the future. So I want to see China develop in more areas. Fair enough. What what, what do you think, though? What What is the marker for success? Well, is I, it, think, is it... I, think, I think in China, it's still, as much as they say it's not about gold, they still would pick the nine golds every time. I agree. But I think if you're getting 30 medals, 
uh, over the course of the games, you're set up much better for the future than if you're getting 15. Future smuture. <laughs> I mean, we're fair living enough, in the now. And, I mean, and again, I'm just asking the question. This is uh-huh. not in any way to 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 kind of put down China's achievement. Right. It was f- phenomenal to see China do so well. Uh, but I'm just, you know, kind of wondering, like, like if they kind of internally look, what would we have rather if we didn't have to kind of like have have a ranking, have a medal table, but probably still golds. But I think I think the, I think the discussion's interesting. Your number five, Mark. My number five is hockey and. The Chinese hockey. Did you have? Do you have hockey? Hockey no? is not on my top. Okay. Five, no. I. I mean, I had a few things here. I'll try and wrap it. I mean, let's go with the men's side. Corey Kane in a real elimination game against Canada, scoring to make it two one. Then they immediately go on the power play. They had Canada on the ropes. Owen Power, who's going to be a huge superstar in the NHL in the years to come, went to the box. Like Canada had a terrible first period, and China was pushing them every step of the way. Now, you know, it ended up in, in a 7-2 result, but China did very, very well. A couple of other things, a bit more lighthearted, you know, the, the Chinese names, we have to mention the Chinese names yeah. for the men's hockey. <laughs> you know, Jeka, Kaliao, uh, Al for, for Jake Chelios and, and Roe An Sipulawa for Ryan Sprawl. Mm-hmm. Um, some some kind of creative transliterations there. There were others. Danny Sir Al Shibofu for Denis Osipov, the Russian. You know, there were some good moments there. And and I think we have to end on Chinese hockey with the with the women. They did phenomenally well. And we and we spoke to, of course, uh, goalie Kim Newell last week. The the shootout win where they where they took Japan the distance and then with with Hannah Miller Miller <laughs> scoring, <laughs> scoring the win I mean that that is one of those you know jumping off the couch yelling at the TV type moments right it you know the moments that get you off your feet and and for me there weren't that many across the Olympics but you know that was one of them and so just uh, great to see them have even though they weren't able to, to to kind of qualify into the quarterfinals but they had a good run my number five I I'm gonna guess that it's a bit higher for you. Yeah. So I'm gonna I'm gonna put the name out there, mm. and then we can talk about it later. Uh, Eileen Gu. Okay, it is higher. Let's wait until we get to it on your list. All right. You want to go and know your number four? No, then? no. Let's go to your number four now. Lindsay Jacobellis and Shu Meng Tao. Basically, age is not a barrier. So if people don't know the the Jacobellis story, very briefly, she showboated and lost gold at the finish line sixteen years ago in the snowboard cross and she ended up with a silver and she came back and back and back at three other olympics and and still finished outside the medals and at the age of 36 she won gold and then teamed up with a 40 year old to win uh, another gold in the mixed team so just incredible there and shuming tao i think for china in the women's aerials had a very similar story she was sixth uh, in vancouver and I, I remember watching her there uh, and then she won a silver medal. Then she was ninth and then finally got the gold. And you saw, I think the whole of China probably cried with her when she was screaming in, you know, delight, frustration, um, not frustration, but just the, just that the release of the tension of all those years of, of hurt and training and everything wrapped up into that golden moment. And that was amazing. So there's hope for me. <laughs> <laughs> is there, is... Sorry for laughing, but no, there's <laughs> no, no hug. Oh. In other areas, hug. But I, I think, I think, and I'll put myself, uh, you know, humbly put myself in this box. But I think our Olympic uh, careers are probably over. All right, I think you're right. My number four is the absence of any political protest during these Olympics. Hmm. Now, Rule 50 is something that we've talked about, and that's the IOC rule that basically prohibits any political speech on the podium or the field of play. 
one of my predictions for these Olympics was that you probably wouldn't see any athletes make any political statements in the field of play. The closest that we got was that Ukrainian skeleton athlete who had the uh, no war sign. You know, at the end of the Olympics, British skier Gus Kenworthy, he said something about, um, he talked about China's record on LGBTQ rights, which are not good. He said he'd been advised to tread lightly when he's in Beijing, and that's what he was trying to do. Did he say who, who advised him? He said somebody in his team advised him not right. to. Um, so why was there no major diplomatic incidents? One of the really interesting quotes that I read was from U.S. former U.S. skier Noah Hoffman. He told Voice of America that internal politics within teams may have dissuaded athletes from speaking critically. Uh, coaches can bench athletes who bring unwanted attention, and there's pressure from your teammates to not cause a distraction. We know of at least one athlete who has spoken out since they went home, that yeah. Swedish gold medal winning speed skater Niels Vanderpool. And that's about it. Uh, you were right. I was wrong, actually. I thought there were going to be at least a few isolated moments or at least press conferences where people are asked the question. I think the headlines beforehand really scared people off. And I was thinking there's no way that China is going to escalate this and, and you know, they, they will let the IOC deal with it. But that wasn't the narrative. People like genuinely seem to be slightly afraid of what might happen if they speak out. Uh, because of, you know, the narrative around China and their, their lack of experience and, and knowledge about China. They'd be like, um, I'm going to get locked up and, and, and all that sort of stuff. So I think that did play into it. So from a Chinese point of view, whether that was the intention or not, that I, it has to be considered as a win. They didn't want people speaking out. <laughs> uh, yeah, yeah, I, yeah, I agree. Um, what's your number three? Number three, Su Yiming, now 18 years old. I think, you know, his humility was just so impressive. He was so thankful for his success, thankful for the opportunity. He's, he's incredibly talented. He has every right to be, you know, uh, sort of an arrogant teenager. And he just comes across so, so well. Um, uh, you know, he's, he's fluent in three languages. Uh, like I said, uh, the snowboard community seems to love him. And I think the wider sporting community got to know him for the first time. I'm really excited to see what happens to him in the future. I think he could be phenomenal for winter sports, but honestly, for China as a whole, you know, if if he's allowed to just be himself, he could be a fantastic ambassador for the country at a time, frankly, when it's sorely needed. My number three, Olympics ratings. Yeah. Now, it was always going to be a tough sell. Uh, but the Olympics were a perfect storm of apathy in the U.S., 13-hour time difference, closed-loop system, no NHL players. Uh, the end result in the U.S. was that it was the smallest primetime audience for Winter Olympics on record and got just over half of the viewership that Pyeongchang got. But the story in China was totally different. 600 million people here watched the Olympics in China. So once again, we find ourselves with two different conversations. There's the Western conversation, and then there's the Chinese conversation. And I think that's really interesting. There's also the data conversation for me. And, and you know, don't want to be a pain on this, but a lot of the numbers, you know, unregulated, particularly when it comes to streaming platforms. I will say on the foreign side, there was a lot more streaming than we've seen in the past. It doesn't make up, as far as I can tell, for the drop in, in TV broadcast. But the streaming lives on. The short form video is people are still watching the highlights. Uh, and so that's kind of a cumulative, and that's just the way the market is trending. I think the the Olympics aren't dying. I, I certainly hope they're not dying. There were different reasons, I think, why NBC were, was already expecting. They were telling uh, advertisers that, you know, they're expecting a drop in numbers, and, and they were kind of going to make it up to them in other ways. So 
not a huge surprise, but I do think, you know, we need to look at the numbers, but also be careful with the numbers too. Also, the next two Olympics are going to be more ratings friendly, or at least time zone friendly for the American audience, right? So we're going to have Paris in 2024, Milan Cortina in 2026. You know, I think that's going to be more of a test. And flipping it around, what's it going to be like for the Chinese market? Let's hope that, you know, the Olympic fever still carries through and that the Chinese are watching in big numbers. You, you'd be stunned if it wasn't the most watched Winter Olympics here. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, but, but yeah. you know, I hope that, that Chinese people got into it um, and will continue to watch. You're number two. Number two, it's a bit of a frustration, I'll be honest. I didn't want to finish on a down note, so I didn't put it top. And it's not, it's not my top one, but it's important. It is important. It started for me when the NHL pulled out. You know, I was like... Oh, I was so looking forward to the NHL players being here. It would have just lifted it to a different level. But then, you know, when we got here, just the lack of tickets and uh, yeah. honestly, the broken promises. You know, they said 150,000 people were going to be there and then it turned out it was only 90,000. Uh, we, all we heard was that COVID was fantastic success. And it was. But then they said, we're going to allow more people into the into the stadiums. That didn't happen. Um 834 people watched Canada beat the US 3-2 in the women's ice hockey final, right? And, okay, it is a little bit personal for me. I was screened out of my one hockey ticket I had because I had the wrong three vaccinations, so I kind of feel bad. And my wife was telling me to stop whining about it. She's like, you've watched (laughs) hundreds of sporting events. What's the big deal? And I'm like, well, it's the Olympics. I love the Olympics. So, yes, I I don't want to make this too personal. It's not a grudge. But, you know, when they were like, oh, here's a letter of thanks for the 21 million residents of Beijing. I was like, yeah, basically they didn't really have an Olympics, not one that they could embrace. And as a result, there just wasn't the atmosphere that that we were hoping for. Like I said, I came to China 15 years ago for the Olympics. So like, I love Olympic fever. I, <laughs> I didn't feel it. I wanted to feel it. I wanted to see it. And, and I think we're in Beijing. From speaking to a few friends around the country i mean they i think they barely knew the olympics were on apart from of course online tell. it yeah. was like a, a you know a tv games i've never been to an olympics before mark but i have been to world cup i was in busan in south korea yeah. in 2002 and of course it was a completely different time I mean, no covid i mean it was a, it was a party all over the place but there were banners everywhere yeah there were there was no confusion about this you knew that you were in a world cup city in Beijing, this is the thing that they I throw- don't quite understand. Like there was nothing, nothing. There were no billboards. There were no uh, that, that I saw anyway. They throw up more signs on the motorways for like a a, a a common regular political event to have some you know leaders coming in from the airport than yeah. they have for the Olympics. It was quite amazing. And then of course the focus is like, well, Bing Duan Duan. So you know everyone's <laughs> everyone's got the fever. It's like, yeah, that's a little mascot that no one took any interest of three years ago. Anyway. Don't want to finish on a down note, so let's move on. Well, I mean, my my number two is kind of in a similar vein, and it's it's really more about zero COVID games, yeah. right? You can complain about China's zero COVID strategy, and you can complain about China's zero COVID game strategy. The fact is, it worked exactly as it was designed to work. There was trade-off, though, and the trade-off is exactly what you were just talking about. There was just no atmosphere. From what it sounds like, there was just not much atmosphere inside the games either. However, unlike Tokyo, athletes were in, able to take in some events inside the loop. And there were some external spectators. Most were Chinese nationals, but we know that there were some non-Chinese who got tickets as well. Yeah, for sure. I mean, the images of, of you know, the hazmat suits and the testing, and I think it was just strange. I mean, Tokyo, of course, was the same. 
China did a fantastic job with the organization. But yeah, hopefully the next Olympics will... will uh, oh my God. <laughs> will be different. It will be. I've already done my number one, so let's skip that. What is your number one, Mark? I'm going to well, guess. You've already foreshadowed it. Yeah. <laughs> you've already foreshadowed it. Miss Eileen Gu. I mean, what a story. There's so many things to talk about, and, and we've we've spoken about most of them already. So, you know, I, I'll just pick a few. Like, like, you know, there's haters on both sides. I think there's a there's a more nuanced narrative than we've than we've been shown here in China. Uh, quite a few Chinese people have sort of said, "Why are you defending her so much?" Like, um, you know, she's 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 not all she's cracked up to be and everything she says. You know, of course, the, the the narrative online is that you know we love her and and she's fully Chinese and all that sort of embrace of her. Uh, for me, the one moment. I kind of liked was that press conference where she sort of fired back a little bit and she's like, I'm not here to please everyone. And, you know, it was a little bit snarky. And she said, you know, and you know what? They're not going to win the Olympics. Kind of like an FU. And I was like, you know what? Good for her. Like she's got a bit of personality. She is first and foremost, unbelievably talented, you know, but there's so many other things. That's why we're all talking about her. If she wasn't good, no one would care, right? Two gold medals and a silver and she's just getting going. So, this is the first chapter of the Eileen Goose story. We know there's going to be lots more. There's going to be scandals. There's going to be people trying to pull her down. There's going to be people trying to build her up. There's going to be everything in between. But I mean, the column inches devoted to Eileen Goo all over the world was just unbelievable. The number of interviews I was asked just about her, it's probably half of the ones I did. Well, I only have one thing to add about Eileen Goo, and it's a mea culpa. Because uh, we talked about that press conference that you just mentioned mm. on this show. And I expressed a little bit of frustration. I said she should answer the questions about her citizenship. Yeah, yeah. And, and you made the point that, well, it's a no-win situation for her. You were right. I mean, it really was a no-win situation if she had answered that question. I've sort of changed a little bit on this because, hmm. you know, you made the point. She's put herself in this situation. She has. She's trying to play both sides. Uh, and that position today, rightly or wrongly, is largely untenable. You know, we talked last week about about her singing the Chinese national anthem and kind of mumbling her way through it so she avoids criticism on the Chinese side for not singing it and avoids criticism on the US side for, for singing it. And it's, you know, <laughs> yeah. but, but it's not really going to please, like the US side doesn't want her singing it at all. The Chinese side wants her singing it, you know, loudly. So it's tricky and she's still going to have to create this this perfect manufactured image, which is impossible to maintain. Uh, and there will be people trying to knock it down. So... You know, she's going to go through a whole lot of uncalled for shit for, for sure. And uh, but but that is also a reality of, of her situation, the geopolitical situation, the sporting situation. So, like I said, it's just getting started. Any final thoughts, Mark? Wow, it went quickly, didn't it? I mean, you know, I feel like we were talking about it so long to build up and, and still in the sort of lingering athletes talk about this uh, and of course for them it's far far greater like sort of the the hangover the, the the depression almost of the the incredible high that they went through we saw at the closing ceremony athletes just didn't want to leave they kept home saying please take your seats please take your seats and they're like no we want to dance um you know they had the time of their lives whether they won medals or not the vast majority of them didn't win medals and they knew that coming in but they performed on the biggest stage and and it's just you know it's a it's a fantastic event I would just give a quick plug. The Paralympics are coming up and, and you know, they, they get a fraction of the attention, but there's some great stuff in there to watch. So if people are listening and they're wondering about the Paralympics, sled hockey is fun. 
alpine skiing with the, the sit ski stuff, like there's some incredible feats of athleticism apart from anything else. And every single person at the Paralympics, by the nature of the Paralympics, has an unbelievable story. You talked about leaving this on a high note. And there was this great story you tell in the book about the Paralympics and how you got a note from somebody. Yeah, yeah. What, what, what was that story? I was commentating on the 2008 Paralympics here, and it was actually for the IPC. It was back then. Very few broadcasters were covering it. So it was one of the early sort of streaming platforms. So we went on Facebook and other, and other platforms. But because there was no other channel, we got quite a few viewers. And I was doing some wheelchair rugby. And that is, wow, that is, that is a, a murder ball as, it, as it's known. And that is definitely a sport worth watching. We got this comment in and I, I, it just stayed with me. It was a guy who said, I was in a car accident 18 months ago and I've been sitting at home feeling sorry for myself ever since every single day. But I've been so inspired by the coverage, by your coverage of the Paralympics that I'm going to get down to my gym first thing Monday morning and I'll see you in London in four years time. I was like, Wow. Just to be a part of showcasing those sports to, to a wider audience and to be able to inspire. I know we talk about the politics, the Olympics and all these other sort of outside issues, but at its core, the Olympics and sport and the Paralympics, if they can inspire people to be better, you know, again, don't want to be too uh, <laughs> naive and, and, and simplistic, but like, I love that. Well, let's leave it there, Mark. That's the show this week. Before we start bawling, yeah. Before we start crying, <laughs> exactly. We're going to be back next week. See you then.